Blitzkrieg Pop Log Supplemental. I'm stranded, all alone, adrift in the vacuum of space. My only weapon to combat my loneliness, comic books. The following is a review, which will contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. Adam out. everyone welcome to the blitzkrieg pop i'm adam co-owner of infinite collectibles in paducah kentucky and welcome to 2021 the year of the ox or as i will now call it the year of the smunch eh, for no better reason than that's what i'm calling it 2020 was a fucking insane year and that goes without saying and as it's now behind us hopefully we can start to get back to a regular schedule with the blitzkrieg pop with munch's birthday on december 21st and the holidays and into the new year Shit always gets hectic, and we decided, for sanity's sake, to push the recording back a little and take a small break. I mean, we all needed it. Even though it's always fun to bullshit about nerd stuff with your besties, it's also a lot of work. Uh, We've taken these last few weeks to decompress and chill with our families, as hopefully you've been doing. So happy New Year to everyone, cheers to good health and safe travels and all that great shit, and let's get this party started. I have two things on the docket today. First up, I requested... Read and review from my good friend Jared Henson, who has appeared on two episodes of the Blitzkrieg Pop thus far, uh, the Motu episode about Kevin Smith and Masters of the Universe, and the TMNT Last Ronin episode. Jared is a He-Man fanatic and has requested I read Revenge of the Snake Men, one of the many comics that was packed in with various action figures. Before I do that, though, sitting in with me today is Guinness Draft Stout. Now, let me open this bad boy up. All right. So this has a little nitrogen canister in it, and to correctly enjoy this, you're supposed to crack it open, wait for the nitrogen to kind of make its way into it, and then pour it at a 45-degree angle, which I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's see. There's the nitrogen canister. All right. So I've got this bad boy poured. Now, to tie this in with Motu, very loosely, there's a lion on the Guinness can, and uh, I'm going to tie that into Astro Lion, uh, which was a Wave 6 action figure from 87, and quite possibly the worst-looking turd of the whole bunch. Supposedly a transforming meteor, it looks a whole lot like an egg. Astro Lion was a heroic meteorb, and never appeared in anything. Not the comics, not the show, just as a last-ditch effort by Mattel to drum up some interest in their once-proud, now-dying Motu toy line. It's the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen, and it's actually quite expensive. I was, I was looking it up earlier, and uh, the damn thing loose goes for about 80 bucks, which is to say that sometimes rare shit is just that. Shit, and that's why it's rare. Anyway, let's jump into this book. First, though, I'm going to give a little bit of history on the mini-comics themselves, because, hey, that's interesting to me. So everyone in my age group, which I'll say is roughly... I don't know, from 35 to 55 maybe, is probably familiar with the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe cartoon, which ran from 83 to 85, with 135 total episodes. He-Man was my shit when I was little. 
I had the toys, games, Halloween costumes, and I watched the show religiously, well into syndication. The cartoon was my main source of all info, though, for Eternia. Being between two and four years old when it was airing, I did not read the little comic books that came in most of the action figure packages. Not until now. A total of 49 distinct mini-comics were developed and delivered in various toy packages from 81 to 87. The comics were created as a means of fleshing out He-Man and Skeletor's backstory and creating the sword and sorcery meets science fiction lore of their universe. They were a way to kind of bring kids like myself into the mythos, with each issue depicting a new character or characters, and they, it would kind of show what side they're on or what faction they belong to, and they're basically just advertisements and were the precursor to the show. The story in the comics, though, especially in the first couple years there, is much different than the cartoon. At first, He-Man is just He-Man. There's no Prince Adam. Skeletor is an evil warlord from another dimension, and Battle Cat doesn't even turn into Cringer. Uh, the Power Sword is broken into two, with He-Man and Skeletor each possessing half, and the comics covered each as they struggled to combine the pieces and unlock Castle Grayskull. Pretty epic shit, really. But all that changed in 83 with the creation of the beloved Filmation cartoon. At that point, the comics are then all based on episodes of the show. The comic I have been tasked to read is Revenge of the Snake Men from 1987, the same year that the Dolph Lundgren movie came out, and uh, just so happened to coincide with the fall of Masters of the Universe. Coincidence? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, that was a pretty bad movie, pretty, pretty pitifully received. So Revenge of the Snake Men was packaged with Blast Attack, Snake Face, and Squeeze. The story was written by Phil White, a legend in the Motu universe. Uh, Phil was an engineer by trade, but lost his job due to cutbacks from an oil crisis. After an extensive job search, he found himself employed at Mattel's Creative Resources Group, or CRG, and they were the department in charge of filing copyrights on packaging and instructions, as well as working on the mini-comics. Mattel's engineers would design a toy, then come to Phil's department to get names and story ideas to explain why the toys did what they did. So you have to remember, these were action figures with an emphasis on action. Every Motu figure had some kind of gimmick, some kind of action that it did, like from battle damage to losing its skin to reveal a snake man. So while the toys were being made, the CRG would research the copyright info on the name proposed by the creator and then develop the actual story for the packages and in some cases, in this case in particular, even write the mini-comics. This issue in particular was drawn by Chris Carlson, who does a fine job with what's here to work with, and it's lettered by Stan Sakai, who you may know his name. He's the creator of Usagi Yojimbo, one of my favorite fucking books of all time. I love Usagi Yojimbo, the rabbit bodyguard. Actually, flipping through this large book, which is what I, I was given a giant 1,200-page book that's just packed full of these mini-comics by Jared, with this one in particular that he wanted me to read. However, looking through the table of contents, it tells you what creators did what, and Stan Sakai's name is all over this book as the letterer. And as soon as I flip it open, I, I, you know, I can see it. It looks just like the Usagi comics. I mean, the letters do. Not the artwork and not the stories, but Sakai's awesome. It was really cool to see he, that he was involved in this. I'm going to get a drink here now. Mm, that is pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a stout man, though. I do like stouts. I'm not too big on IPAs. That's about the only thing I don't love is an IPA. I, it's just too hoppy for me. But stouts are my jam. 
and they have a little bit of coffee in them. That's kind of my favorite. Maybe that's my that maybe that's why I like them so much. All right, let's jump into this story though. Uh, since this issue was a pack in with three figures, blast attack, snake face, and squeeze, and I'm I'm saying it that way because it has three S's. Squeeze. It introduces them immediately on the cover and on the first page. The cover's pretty cool, uh, featuring Squeeze and He-Man in an uncomfortable embrace with Blast Attack to the left, Snake Face to the right. It's pretty straightforward, uh, though the background, it's just an open curtain. It seems like there's some kind of stage performance. I don't know. It's, a, it's an odd choice. Anyway, the story opens on Viper Tower, uh, where the Snake Men make their evil home. King Hiss is up to no good. That's a quote. King Hiss... <laughs> was introduced in 86 with the comic King of the Snake Men, for those of you interested. King Hiss, uh, using his evil magic, coupled with the evil that's just inherent in Viper Tower, I, I guess, makes a portal to call forth a couple of his henchmen who were banished to a nameless dimension. The henchmen? You guessed it. Snake Face and Tanglor. W- what? Wait, hold on. Tanglor? Interestingly, Squeeze... I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. Squeeze is called Tanglor here. I could not find the reason for the change and believe myself that it must have been changed by the CRG when acquiring the copyrights. Who knows, though? There's really nothing ever said about it or, you know, anything to say why it changed or anything like that. So that's just speculation on my part. So anyway, back to the story. Ah, the two warriors uh, who he's called forward tell Hiss that they are grateful and make a rocking snake pun, calling him your scale ness which that's not the last time they make a stupid snake pun. His says he has a mission for them and tells them to bring out his latest creation, Blast Attack. Now, Blast Attack is a very, <laughs> I guess he's a robot. He's like a robot that just explodes, which we'll get into a little bit later as that comes up in the story. So Snake Face and Squeeze are to take Blast Attack uh, with them to kidnap Queen Marlena. Hiss makes the mistake of asking if Rattler, another snake man goober, has set Blast Attack's timer to explode. At the, w- at the mention of the word explode, Blast Attack just blows up, like right there in Hiss's throne room. Now, no one seems to mind that they just had a guy explode in there, and unperturbed, Hiss just tells everyone to reassemble Blast Attack and sends the three of them on their merry way. Luckily for them... Grayskull is literally 40 feet away, and the front door is wide open. The snake men barge in on Prince Adam, who tells Queen Marlena and the sorceress to hide in a closet while the new characters demo their powers. Squeeze, I'm sorry, Squeeze, here, still Tanglor, wraps up a guard with his extra snaky long arms, and Snake Face turns Prince Adam to stone, a la Medusa. Then the snake men and Blast Attack open the closet door, turn Marlena to stone, remark about the absence of the sorceress, and carry the new stone statue of Marlena back to King Hiss. Hiss tells them they did a wonderful job and that it's a shame that she can never be turned back to flesh. Here we cut back to Grayskull, where the power sword begins to illuminate on Prince Adam's back. It eventually unpetrifies him, and he pulls the sword off his back, holds it aloft, and with the magic words said, turns into He-Man. He looks in the closet, and no one's there. But before he can leave, Queen Marlena pops her head out and informs him the snake men thought they grabbed her, but actually nabbed a shape-shifted sorceress. He-Man jumps in the battle tram, 
That's right. The Battle Tram, a monorail system that runs straight to Viper Tower. Like I said, it was only 40 feet away at max. I mean, the Eternia playset shows you that Grayskull, Central Tower, and Viper Tower are right there together. Pretty awesome. So anyway, He-Man arrives and breaks in while the Snake Men are throwing a big-ass party to celebrate their successful kidnapping. He jumps down and with everyone surprised at his sudden entrance, frees the sorceress. Seeing the statue was actually not Queen Marlena, King Hiss now gets pissed and tells his goofs to attack. He-Man easily sneaks around behind them and Snakeface turns Hiss, Tangler, and Rattler to stone. He-Man then performs some maneuvers, grabs a reflective shield, and Snakeface petrifies himself. The sorceress and He-Man return to Grayskull, where He-Man delivers a PSA with a smile and a wink. Sometimes, things and people aren't what they seem. And that's it. That's the whole story. It's only 11 pages. Pretty short. It's a mini-comic, though. So, my review. Um, So, for what it is, an action figure pack-in meant to explain new characters and their abilities, it succeeds. Uh, As a story, it's not terrible. It's short, though. I mean, I laughed a lot reading it. I really did. But I never thought He-Man was in peril or that would have a game-changing outcome. But that's not the point here. I can't believe, however, Jared wanted me to read this because he said as a child it scared him, which I found hilarious. I don't know what here is scary. Maybe the people being turned into stone. I'm going to have to have Jared comment on, on this one. It, that's way too interesting. Anyway, um, the art is solid. I mean, Chris Carlson does a fine job. And, you know, as with all Motu stuff, the characters look cool and shit. They have a monorail. That's cool. It's cheesy, though. It's good versus evil with no confusion about who is who. But I only read one issue out of a 1,200-page book crammed with these mini-comics. I feel it's unfair not to look at this as a whole. Um, And I know there's got to be some good material out there. You just have to dig for it. So I would say that while it's not a spectacular single issue, it does serve its purpose. And that I'm sure that if you were to read a lot of it, you'd really get some enjoyment out of it. It's uh, called the Masters of the Universe Mini Comic Collection. I mean, seriously, I want to own it now. It collects so much material from the classic pack-ins, the She-Ra comics, the O2 series, and even unpublished stuff in a very nice package. It even has a little bookmark built in. It definitely tickles my nostalgia bone, and it's fairly inexpensive at $29.99. I don't believe any Motu fan could go wrong here. So the second book I'm reviewing today is Maestro by Peter David and Jermaine Peralta. It's a five-issue limited series that serves as an origin story and precursor to 1992's Future Imperfect. Future Imperfect is an amazing story that holds up almost 30 years later, unlike most of the shit that was shoveled out at the time. Also written by Peter David and featuring artist George Perez, the Hulk is brought forward in time to defeat an insane, despotic ruler of the apocalyptic wastes, who just so happens to have a familiar face. It's the Hulk himself. The thing about it, though, is that we're never told the why, the how, or what took place to cause the Hulk of the future to want to rule the planet. That's where this book, The Maestro, comes in. The story begins at an AIM facility run by none other than Old Man Modoc, which makes me just giddy. 
where they're studying radiation-empowered heroes with the goal of understanding their physiologies to create their immunity to radiation. So when the Hulk wakes up, and this is the combined Hulk, usually called the Professor, like the version seen in Endgame, from his VR-induced dream state, he's mad and wants to escape and begins smashing the place up. This leads to one of my favorite confrontations where old Modoc tells Hulk, here in the future, they have things called elevators and doors. So instead of just smashing shit, he could just use those. It's fucking awesome. Uh, it made me laugh out, out loud, actually. So anyway, Modoc opens the front door and out into the waste, Hulk goes. I was immediately, I mean immediately taken with Peralta's art. It's stunning. And I have to admit, I've never heard of him before. The first thing I noticed was the depth of his facial expressions. When Hulk comes to in his cryo cell, he looks confused and bewildered, which turns to rage. And just looking at the sequence, I could feel it. It looks like what my face would look like in that kind of situation. So Peralta makes excellent use of body language as well. In Hulk's exchange with Modoc, Modoc's frustration and exasperation at Hulk smashing up his facility was so evident by his arms hanging by his side. He's just tired looking. His features are just old and beat down. It's, it's beautiful artwork. Now with Hulk escaping into this new world and finding nothing left of civilization, again, Peralta's art shines. I mean, you can feel how lost the Hulk is, and you can empathize as he bounds around desperately searching for anything he can recognize. That desperation plays out on Hulk's now balding face with expert line work and attention to detail. I'm even now considering reading the King and Black Black Panther tie-in just for more of his art. Anyway, back to this story. That was basically issue one. It's just basically Hulk waking up, smashing up the facility, and getting out. In issue two, the Hulk finally finds evidence of life as he sees a young boy near Washington, D.C. fleeing underground. After following him, he discovers Machine Man, who runs what's left of the White House and the people who hid in its bunker. Hulk sees a monitor depicting a city called Dystopia, which if you've read Future Imperfect, you know Dystopia is the city that he rules in the future. Machine Man tells him it's what's left of New York City, that it's run by an overseer calling himself the Maestro, which I was immediately like, wait, there's someone else that's the Maestro? This is interesting as hell. Hulk says that he must meet this person and bounds off across the waist again. While heading north, he starts feeling dizzy and guesses it's from absorbing too much ambient radiation. He decides he needs to rest, and at that moment is beset by giant mutated cockroaches. He's on, he honestly makes a comment about how they always said cockroaches you know, would inherit the earth after a, a nuclear attack. Sure enough. So they really do a number on him, uh, ripping out large chunks of his flesh until he's saved by people calling themselves the Wasteland Survivalists. Bruce passes out and awakens in their settlement, fully healed to the surprise of the survivalists. After a brief conversation about the maestro and his belief that he's a god, Hulk is off again, this time arriving in the heart of dystopia, Times Square. It is here that a member of the maestro's government, the minister, finds Bruce and invites him to meet the man himself. Hulk and the minister discuss the maestro as they walk to and enter his palace. The minister tells Hulk the maestro is their god, their judge, jury, and executioner. Hulk says he cannot wait to meet him. And on the last page of issue two, from behind the curtain, outsteps none other than the incredible Hercules. And I'm going to stop right here, though. Um, I think this book requires reading for yourself. Suffice to say, I really enjoyed it. I was completely shocked there was someone else calling themselves Maestro, and even more surprised it was Hercules. Herc and Hulk have a very storied past, and Hercules even took over the Hulk book after World War Hulk in 07. 
What follows after the reveal of Hercules is awesome and answers a few of those questions left by Future Imperfect. Not all of them, but most of them, which is cool because Marvel has already announced a follow-up series to this one called Maestro Warren Pax. It's about to begin uh, in January, actually, and I'm really pumped for it. I will not be missing it. So anytime I see Peter David's name attached to the Hulk, I'm on board. I think David is a top-tier writer and one of the few, along with Al Ewing and Joey Bennett, John Byrne and Greg Pak, who actually get the character and can write truly interesting stories with him. Anyway, this book's too good. I, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because some of you may want to read it. And it just ended. Literally, this it ended in December. So I don't want to throw too much out there. Just maybe entice you with it actually begins to explain who and how the Hulk fell into being this maestro. As always, uh, I hope you enjoyed this. Send me your suggestions and stick around for the next proper episode of the Blitzkrieg Pop coming the first Monday in February, which I believe is February 1st. We are going to get back on schedule. It's just been, it's been a crazy ride, to say the least. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep it geek. <laughs>